Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. A big win for machinists at The Ohio State University. Drivers demanding justice. And today on the show, service employees, local 32BJ and labor lawyer Joyce Goldstein joins us. Welcome to the Friday, January 12th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. Manny Pastrike will be our first guest on the show today. He is president of a uh, pretty significant union, Service Employees Local 32BJ. We're talking 175,000 members in New York City, the District of Columbia, Boston, New Jersey, Maryland, Virginia, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Connecticut, and Florida. And they are still growing. They're targeting other states as well. Before becoming president, Manny was the director of bargaining and secretary treasurer. In the 90s, he worked as a researcher supporting SEIU's organizing and bargaining all across the country before doing a three-year stint as a research director for the AFL-CIO on the United Farm Workers Strawberry Worker Organizing Campaign. He then completed another three years with the AFL-CIO coordinating multi-union campaigns in the airline in airport sectors. He joined 32BJ as a research director in 2002, and he has been involved in every state, and you heard how many states they're involved in. He's involved in every state where the union operates, bargaining contracts, strengthening the foundation of the union's funds, and what he says, gaining a truly comprehensive understanding of what it takes to build momentum across the union's jurisdiction. What we're going to talk about is a tentative deal. Two things we're going to get into. First, a tentative deal, and the workers, the members, are voting on it as we speak. And this was a deal reached between 32BJ and the board representing owners, managers, and cleaning companies, averting a strike by 20,000 commercial cleaners and other workers that was set to begin at the beginning of this year. So they averted that. Now, our second segment, we're going to zero in on something I think is remarkable remarkable it's uh, it's a coalition made up of SEIU 32BJ and the machinist union and they call themselves the drivers demand justice coalition and right now there's been some legislation introduced and there's a ballot initiative and Manny's going to get some more details on this this is happening in the state of Massachusetts to create an alternative mechanism for unionizing Uber and Lyft drivers. Now, under the proposed law, and this is all in flux right now, the rideshare companies must bargain with any union that 25% of drivers designate as their representative. Pretty fascinating. And as you know, these drivers are deemed as independent contractors, so they're taken advantage of. And uh, what we're going to see now is probably a new kind of union that will have partners with 32BJ and the Machinist Union. And Manny's going to explain all of this as our first guest on the show. 
Later, we're going to check in with Joyce Goldstein, who has been busy, busy, busy. We started this segment with Joyce a couple of years ago. Joyce Goldstein and Associates, she's been practicing labor law for well over 40 decades. And uh, she is now serving as general counsel of the bricklayers and allied craft workers. And uh, you may recall a conversation I had with Tim Driscoll, the, the general president of the bricklayers. This was on Tuesday's show, and he talked about the Semex decision. And this is something the National Labor Relations Board covered back in uh, August. And there's been some back and forth on this issue. In a nutshell, in a nutshell, this is what this decision means. If the workers choose to go union, say they have a majority representation and they're, they're going to want to start a union at their respective shop, well, then the employer has to meet with them. Up until now, they could have said, no, sorry, we're not going to recognize you. And there are sanctions involved. they got to do this within a short time period, like two weeks. This changes 50 years of precedent because the original decision, which went against unions, came out in the 1970s. So once again, you got a very proactive and a pro-labor NLRB, and good things happen for workers. And Joyce Goldstein is going to talk about that. Now, a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at boydwatterson.com. Nearly 1,000 patient care associates, better known as PCAs, and psychiatric care technicians, or PCTs, at the Ohio State University's Wexner Medical Center, have voted to join the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. The healthcare workers chose IAM representation in a mail ballot election, which was conducted between December 5th and the 19th and concluded with the counting of ballots on January 3rd. The organizing effort was a collaboration between the Machinist Union and the Ohio State University Nurses Association, which is a local of the Ohio Nurses Association, and they, in turn, are affiliated with the American Federation of Teachers, which represents approximately 4,000 registered nurses at the Wexner Medical Center. Comment here from Lindsay Cody. Lindsay is a uh, patient care associate, and she says, I'm so happy to have a voice in the workplace, finally. Alongside my colleagues, we came together knowing that we deserve to be heard, to have a better quality of life for ourselves and others surrounding us. Having a union at Ohio State will strengthen us as a team and as a whole alongside other nurses, and I'm looking forward to our future with the machinists. IAM Organizing Department Grand Lodge Representative Allie Rhodes at the forefront of this strategic and comprehensive campaign, along with her colleagues, initiated this effort. Happened about a year ago. Their dedication aimed to empower healthcare workers with a genuine voice on the job, improved wages and benefits, and heightened staffing levels, ultimately enhancing patient care, which is what all nurses want. The resilience and unity demonstrated by the patient care associates at Ohio State Wexner Medical Center has been nothing short of inspiring, said Rhodes. We are proud to welcome them into our family, and we look forward to working together to secure better conditions for all. Another comment here from uh, the new president 
of the Machinist Union. In fact, uh, he took over at the beginning of the year, Brian Bryant. Brian said this victory is a testament to the steadfast dedication of our members and the effectiveness of our organizing strategy. The IAM remains committed to strengthening our presence in the healthcare industry, and this success is a crucial step forward. By the way, this, uh, this victory underscores what Brian Bryant's commitment is to expanding the union's influence in the healthcare sector. It also continues the successful partnership that the machinists and the American Federation of Teachers have. Another comment here, this is from um, Dave Sullivan. Dave is the general vice president of the Machinist Eastern Territory. Dave says this monumental victory not only solidifies our position in the healthcare sector, but also sets the stage for future successes. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, the president of the Service Employees International Union 32BJ. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. The Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylines and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great ironworker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at UAW.org. A great union requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to New York City right now. And joining us on our live line is Manny Pastrike, who is the president of a giant union, 32BJ. And they have, ready for this, more than 175,000 members in 12 states. And by the way, they're the largest property service workers union in the country. Manny, welcome to America's Workforce. Thanks for joining us today. And did I pronounce your name correctly? It's important that I get the name right. Did I do a good job on that? We are off to a good start and you got your facts on the local right. So we're ready to go. Good, good, good. You know what? You're a newcomer to the show and I always like to delve into uh, new people and we get new people on the show all the time been doing this show for over 25 years. This show has been in existence since 1993 as a radio show. 
And for uh, almost four years now, we've been podcasting, and it's been uh, pretty explosive. So you got a pretty good audience here. Talk to me about yourself. How did you get involved in the union movement? Let's start right there, brother. Uh, well, that's a great question. I guess the, the simple answer is, you know, my dad uh, founded uh, two SEIU healthcare locals in Massachusetts. Uh, so I grew up uh, being dragged along to bargaining tables and demonstrations. And, you know, when we went to the movie theaters, uh, folks, would, uh, our, the members of my dad's local would catch him to talk about grievances. So it, it definitely was in my blood uh, growing up. Uh, and my first job uh, in 1992 uh, was with the uh, SEIU Justice for Janitors campaign in Washington, D.C. And, and uh, I recall that got a lot of media attention. Can you uh, can you reflect on that and what actually you, you were able to accomplish? Yeah, it really came out. Uh, SEIU, uh, under, then under President Sweeney, the national president of SEIU at the time, I think really it came to a head in 1986 when in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, the building owners locked out the cleaners uh, there. And I think SEIU had a wake-up call. When, uh, SEIU was founded as a janitor, flat janitor unions in, in Chicago, in New York, uh, L.A. Um, and when in a union town like Pittsburgh, uh, the owners and contractors were willing to lock out the cleaners in the middle of winter, uh, the National Union realized that we had to rebuild uh, that cleaner division uh, and do it in new and aggressive ways because the industry had changed. Our, our members used to work directly for building owners and cleaning contractors and others had come in. We'd lost a lot of stuff in the suburbs as the suburban growth had gone on and even in some of our downtown cities. So uh, SEIU under President Sweeney, uh, Andy Stern was the organizing director, uh, other, tons of other great people, Stephen Lerner at the time, really came up with a, uh, a aggressive organizing campaign that took on cleaning contractors, uh, brought in uh, immigrant, uh, often undocumented workers, uh, and it really just was a complete shift in organizing and approach. And as you noted, it was an aggressive approach to organizing that rebuilt our cities in Washington, D.C., Denver, Los Angeles. Uh, we organized new areas like New Jersey um, and rebuilt a lot of our Midwest cities as well. Mm hmm. Let me ask you, uh, during the pandemic, well, you know, so many things shut down, including a, a lot of places like hotels where and where, you know, obviously they didn't have to clean the rooms. And then when they did open up, they didn't clean them every day. I, I even I'm talking yep. big hotels like Hyatt's and Hilton's. Have we yep. uh, have we corrected that problem in, in your estimation? Uh, we, you know, so the, our cleaners, you know, the large majority of them are in office buildings, although other institutions as well. And uh, I'll just use New York City as an example, that we have cleaners up and down the East Coast. But New York City, before the pandemic, we had about 22,000 cleaners in, in the office buildings, universities, transit centers. Um, and at the height of the pandemic, 7,000 of them were laid off. Um, you know, really no one was showing up in the office buildings. Uh, over a period of years, two plus years, uh, most of those members were called back. Most of those positions were restored, although we're still down 10% uh, lower uh, number of positions than there were uh, before the pandemic. So, you know, remote work, uh, some changes in how the work is being done. Uh, you know, the commercial real estate industry, in all honesty, is still working through the changes uh, in the economy and the pandemic and, you know, vacancy rates have gone up. So there's empty space. 
and remote work are probably the two biggest factors. But I guess to answer your question, yeah, we have 10% less, you know, across our whole East Coast, thousands of less positions than there were before the pandemic. Well, I've been following 32BJ, and I know that there was a potential strike, which has been averted. It was set for the beginning of the year. Um, and we're talking 20,000 commercial cleaners and other workers. Uh, what's what's the story here? Uh, how Well, first of all, how long did the bargaining go? I'm sure there was a, a tug of war. Can, can you, uh, can you, what can you tell us right now about that struggle? Yeah. Well, let, let, uh, just to step back, we, you know, of our 175,000 members in those uh, 12 states, 70,000 are cleaners in office buildings, like I was talking about. And all, and those 70,000 are covered under 12 different agreements uh, that all expired between October 15th and December 31st. Uh, and December 31st, uh, uh, the New York City agreement, which is the largest by far, that has those 20,000 members, our Connecticut agreement, uh, the New Jersey, uh, 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 Hudson Valley, Long Island also expired at that time. So over the past two and a half months, we've been taking on bargaining with, you know, a commercial industry that, as I was saying, has, is in a downturn uh, and really fighting to, you know, uh, move forward because our members, you know, suffered under inflation increases and, you know, really fell behind in the last contracts. So we had to make up for the inflation and get good raises going forward. We need to protect our benefits. We're really proud that in most of those areas, we have full family health insurance with no premium sharing for our cleaners and, you know, dealing with pension and other benefits. So it was a, it was a real struggle up and down the East Coast. Uh, in New York, we were faced with uh, employer proposals that included a two-tier wage system, just like the UAW went on strike for 30 days to fix. Uh, premium sharing uh, that, you know, would have made our members uh, who were trying to get by in New York City uh, choose between rent and health care, choose between taking care of their kids in health care. So we were faced with a very, very hard attack from an industry that was somewhat reeling from remote work and vacancies. So it, it, it went down to the wire. Now, when when you came up with one agreement, you said there were a number of contracts here. Was there any possibility of, of setting like a pattern like they do? You mentioned the UAW, and often when they come up with a contract with Ford or GM, they try to you know use that as as the as the grid pretty much for the other for the other big uh, automakers. Was that did any of that go on with the with the cleaners in this situation? Yeah. I would say our agreements for historical reasons don't have the same consistency that I understand the UAW agreements have. Uh, you know, some of our agreements have been in place since the depression and, you know, are really relatively higher wage, uh, uh, you know, in Pittsburgh, which is not a high cost city, our cleaners make $20 an hour and can get family health insurance and have a pension, uh, you know, and then there's some areas that are more newly organized like Delaware which still, you know, is a high, higher cost area, and you know, folks are significant are at like eight, seventeen, eighteen dollars an hour. So it really varies. So we don't have quite the same pattern. But having said that, I think we do try and build and use some of the things that the UAW and others have done is try and build momentum in the places where we're stronger uh, and get good wins. You know, we had, we ended up getting a great contract in Pittsburgh as our first agreement, which was we were you know in every area our members were fantastic. We had credible strike votes, uh, actions at the buildings, but also using some of the political power that we have in these different cities, the community support to get where we thought we could get those agreements, strong agreements at the beginning and build some momentum, which I think really worked, particularly in the areas outside New York. New York, we sit with 
directly with the build, big building owners as opposed to contractors. So New York becomes its own story to a degree. But oh, yeah. I guess the simple answer is we do try and use uh, build momentum through some of the earlier agreements to get to the later agreements. So, so uh, Manny, what what kind of raises did you get here? And New York, look, I mean, let's be honest, it, the cost of living there is astronomical when you compare it to uh, Midwest cities. Are they faring pretty well as a result of your bargaining? Yeah, our, our cleaners in New York City make twenty nine dollars an hour. Uh, we we achieved a, a three dollar and seventy two cent raise over the four years of this agreement, which was the biggest raise uh, we ever achieved for the cleaners. We Additionally, got a $3,000 bonus um, on top of that, which uh, members are really excited about. We'll be voting. The ratification process is going on over the uh, month of January. But initial reactions have been very positive. Uh, and we achieved uh, for the, you know, our pension fund, like many pension funds, had a downturn after 2009. And as we sort of came into the yellow and the edge of the green zone, for the first time, we were able to make a pension improvement. And we were really proud that we achieved a 10% pension improvement for all the years that uh, our, our members have worked for our active members. Uh, as those were the main economics, um, you know, we had a June, Juneteenth as an elective holiday, uh, which members were happy about as well. So those were the, but those were the big categories that we achieved. Well, Manny, that's the power of a giant union, especially like 32 BJ. We're talking 175,000 members New York City, D.C., Boston, New Jersey, Maryland, Virginia, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Connecticut, Florida, and beyond. We'll continue with Manny. Manny Pastrike, who is the president of 32BJ, which is the Service Employees International Union. More to come right after this. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. Are you an experienced mechanical insulator looking to take your career to the next level? Insulators Local 50 in Central Ohio has steady work for a number of years. Insulators Local 50 offers a total wage and benefits package that can't be beat. It's not just the competitive wages. Local 50 also provides medical, vision, and dental insurance with no paycheck deductions for you and your family. Don't miss out on the chance to secure your future. Join us at Insulators Local 50. Earn great pay and the best benefits. Visit insulators50.com forward slash AWF50 to fill out the online form and a local 50 representative will call to begin the process. This portion of the show brought to you by the International Union of Bricklayers and Allied Craftworkers. For more information, please visit bacweb.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. 
America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can find more at oh.aft.org. Let's go back to our live line rejoin. Manny Pestrike, who is the president of 32BJSEIU, giant union, 175,000 members. That's how many members they have in 12 states, pretty much around New York, New Jersey, Boston, Maryland, that, that neck of the woods. A couple more things. I really want to get into this uh, Drivers Demand Justice Coalition and what may happen in the state of Massachusetts. But, you know, you talked about this new contract for the cleaners, 20,000 of them. Definitely a solid contract there. What is your eye on right now? I mean, you know, there was a lot of good things that happened last year, and a lot of labor scholars are saying, okay, we had some strikes. There's probably going to be more strikes. We had some good contracts. There's probably going to be some more good contracts here. Manny, what do you, what, uh, what's on the agenda here for 2024? No, I appreciate the question, and I think that if we take pride in the contracts that we won that we talked about, but we also take pride in, you know, as we, we became, you know, uh, this 175,000-member local through a series of mergers of smaller locals. The theory of that process was to have the strength to fight these large, you know, because the contractors and the owners we're dealing with aren't just in any Philadelphia or New York or Boston. They're in all the cities and across them. So we wanted to combine our power and our efforts to do that. But we also wanted to combine into a large entity that had the power to not just win great contracts, but also to do real organizing and making a difference in politics. So, you know, let's put aside the 2024 election, which will be a huge point of emphasis for us, uh, particularly in the swing states that are in our jurisdiction, like Pennsylvania, Virginia, and to some degree, Florida. But on the organizing front, we have really put a lot of effort and, you know, growing over the last few years by five to 10,000 members a year in organizing. And over the past few years that we've done that through the cleaners, the Justice for Janus campaign, We've done it through security organizing, organizing uh, security officers who you know, uh, sit in the lobbies of, and guard buildings, whether it's office buildings or federal buildings. Um, and we've organized uh, tens of thousands of airport workers, not the direct airline workers, but the wheelchair folks who help uh, you to get to the plane. The people, the contractors that come on the plane after when everyone else is getting off to clean it and get it ready for the quick turnaround. Uh, the cleaners in, who clean the airports themselves. So that has been a big point of emphasis for us as well as airport worker organizing. Um, and then we also have started over the past year talking to, in coalition with the machinist union, uh, uh, talking to Uber and Lyft drivers in Massachusetts, uh, workers that you know are non-traditional, currently don't have uh, traditional organizing rights because they're considered independent contractors. But right. we're really trying to change the law so they have the right to organize, and we're very excited about that. Yeah, I saw a post on that, and uh, it really piqued my interest. It's called the Drivers Demand Justice Coalition, and to your point, yeah, it's uh, 32BJ and the uh, the Machinist Union. Uh, I understand now uh, you're trying to work this through the the, uh, the political process here, and, and Massachusetts, it, it, uh, I have to ask you first, uh, why Massachusetts? I mean, is that a starting point? And, and maybe you can give us some details on what this coalition is attempting to do. 
Yeah, so uh, I, I guess I'll start with Massachusetts and then get to uh, Massachusetts. It started because the uh, the Massachusetts Attorney General actually made a determination or is attempting to in court to uh, say that these workers deserve some of the benefits that you know all workers get: uh, workers' comp, paid days off, which folks in Massachusetts get minimum wage. And as the Massachusetts Attorney General was moving that through the court. Uber and Lyft went out and started an initiative, a ballot initiative that would basically moot uh, all those benefits that the attorney general was trying to achieve. And that's what got us there originally is, you know, mm-hmm. saying, okay, we can't let uh, these large companies not provide basic benefits for the workers. And I, and I'll just note that the drivers, you know, when we are the same, they are our members, you know, our cleaning members, many of them are part-time. They'll have a second job as a Uber or Lyft driver. They're yeah. the family members. When we did a uh, we did a text and email blast to our members saying, "Do you have any? You know, if you have Uber and Lyft drivers in your household?" And we got hundreds and hundreds of responses of our members being Uber and Lyft drivers or their family members being Uber and Lyft drivers. So it really is the same communities of um, immigrants, uh, of working people in in Massachusetts that are our membership. So it, you know, while they're considered independent contractors, they're from the same communities and they're really the same workers as we already represent. So that's sort of how we got into it. Um, we sort of were protecting the work that the attorney general was, making sure that these workers had a path forward. But as we got into it, we realized, you know, right now as independent contractors, which is something the drivers do value, uh, the flexibility of it. You know, I could argue that back and forth, but there is a, a strong element that drivers appreciate the flexibility. Um, but Putting that aside, these workers deserve a process to have a union and create an organization that can fight for them and have a voice with these huge companies. They deserve to have protections, minimum minimum protections like workers' comp and disability, uh, paid days off, uh, some version of a minimum wage that would apply to drivers. They deserve all that, and the, the, uh, the drivers deserve a process if they, you know, like sort of like a grievance process, a traditional grievance process if there's complaint by passengers. Right now, they can just get thrown off the app. They could have bought a car. This could have been their living. And if a passenger complains, they can get thrown off the app with no recourse. So there's all the things that you think of traditionally that workers deserve if they have a union. That's what we're trying to achieve. But because they're considered independent contractors, we have to go through a legislative process, just like other workers that traditionally like farm workers that got left out of labor protections. We need to figure out how to do that in Massachusetts, which will hopefully be a model for other states. Now, just to be clear, if you get this through the legislature, are they still independent contractors, but they'll be unionized? Is, is that fair enough to say? The, um, I think that they would be considered a, a new category of drivers that would have some of the same protections that uh, many of the same protections that workers have, uh, traditional workers have. Um, but they would also not have all of them. So I think it would be sort of a third category is the approach we've been taking. Okay. Now, I'm reading here, and, and I don't know where the law is right now. The rideshare companies must bargain, if, if this you know goes through, the rideshare companies must bargain with any union that 25% drivers designate as their representative, and any agreement must be approved by a majority of drivers with more than 100 trips completed in the previous quarter. Is that uh, pretty accurate right now? That, that, is, that is the current, you know, we have proposed legislation that uh, you're summarizing well that's in front of that we have sponsors in, in the Senate and the House of Massachusetts. 
uh, you know, and that's what we're working off of. You know, I think my gut says that as we go through it, there'll be changes, but we're trying to, you know, we, we estimate, and again, one of the challenges we have is the companies have an incredible amount of information and the drivers have very limited information about trips, about how much the passenger paid versus how much they get. So there really is a, uh, the disclosure and the information is limited, but our estimation is there's probably 60,000 drivers um, in Massachusetts probably half of them drive, let's call it regularly, um, you know, more than just an occasional trip here and there. Um, and ensuring a way that those drivers can, you know, those large numbers can, you know, have a path to get to the union, have a path to bar- bargain collectively, uh, and then set a standard that applies to, you know, re- there's really only two companies, Uber and Lyft. That's the challenge we're trying to get over. Um, and, yeah. you know, there's, Given the status of they're not considered full employees, it is a little more complicated than a traditional union, but it also has advantages. It almost forces us to take a sectoral approach to cover all the companies all together versus one small site here or one small site there or just one town or whatever. We really have to do it statewide. And that's so, you know, the goal is to set a fair standard uh, and give these folks all 60,000 drivers a voice. Okay, let's fast forward. Say, say this is a done deal, all right? That would be a nice day. It would be a very nice day for a lot of people, including the drivers. Uh, you mentioned that you're working with the machinists. Uh, how is that going to work out? Are they going to be members of 32BJ or the machinist union or a little bit of both? Uh, I think the idea is that we would create a new organization that would be part of both SEIU and the machinists. Um, you know, I think that we have valued the machinists, you know, have been on this for years. Uh, they, you know, represented drivers for years and years and years. And I think that we found that their experience, uh, the resources they brought have been a fantastic partnership. And I think that, uh, we've brought a new energy. I think SEIU is one that generally does politics in a, uh, 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 aggressive and way. And we have tons of political power, particularly in Massachusetts. So I think we found a nice balance together and, uh, you know, our, our local leader, Roxana Rivera, and their leader, Mike Bartabedian, have been two, uh, you know, real movers and shakers in Massachusetts and been working well together. So it is, I will say, uh, you know, I have, having been in the labor movement for 30 plus years, I've worked on joint campaigns and they can be difficult. But so far, this one has gone really well and we've worked together great. One more question for you, Manny. What's, what's your timetable? You'd like to get something uh, wrapped up on this by before the end of the year? I mean, it sounds like it's possible. What's your gut telling you? Uh, there is actually, uh, for better or worse, there is a real timeline to this because uh, as this thing has moved forward, as we put our legislation forward, the uh, Uber and Lyft have put forward a whole new series of ballot initiatives, um, which would, again, take away the rights of these workers um, and make it impossible for them to organize. Uh, we have also put a ballot initiative in that would specifically give the workers the right to organize. And then we have this legislation. So, but the ballot initiatives have a timeline. You've got to hit, collect your signatures, which both us and the companies have hit our initial signature timelines. So this will be on the ballot in the fall, uh, and this will be determined in the fall, you know, if it isn't worked out legislatively. Um, so this thing is hot and heavy, and I really do think uh, in 2024 we're going to get resolution one way or another, and we're going to do everything we can, you know, in coalition with the machinists to make sure that uh, the workers come out uh, on the winning side of this fight. 
Yep, that's what we want. And you know what? That's what this show is all about. We want a voice for those workers who have often been exploited over the years. Drivers Demand Justice Coalition. That's that's what it's all about. Manny, you're a great guest. Thank you so much. Let's do this again. Let's stay on this. I always say, you know, this show is your show as well. So please keep us surprised of what's going on and anything that we could do here on America's Workforce. Okay, brother? Yeah, thanks for having me, and it's, uh, we appreciate this uh, forum. It, it's one that we need more of in in America, so thank you for giving uh, the unions, the workers, a, a voice that is uh, unfiltered and clear, so we appreciate you. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to link up with Joyce Goldstein and talk about the Semex decision, a game-changer for labor, back in a few minutes. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with Layuna. Find out what it takes for Layuna to keep America running at Layuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the U.S., US Canada, Canada, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at boydwatterson.com. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency, ulagency.org. Before we go to a Joyce Goldstein, got to do another shout-out here for the many sponsors, all union sponsors, for this year's 2024 AFL-CIO Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Civil and Human Rights Conference, which actually is starting today. It continues through tomorrow and Sunday, and it's being held in Montgomery, Alabama. The theme is Our Voice, Our Ballot, Our Future. And uh, some of the unions that are sponsors include the CWA, AFSCME, Food and Commercial Workers, let's see, the Painters, 
the Smart Union, Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, Transportation Union, and the Union of Bricklayers and Allied Craft Workers. And joining us in our live line right now is the general counsel for the Bricklayers and Allied Craft Workers, but she's not speaking on their behalf. She's talking about a labor board decision called Semex, which we talked about with Tim Driscoll of the Bricklayers, the president of the Bricklayers, on Tuesday's show. Joyce Goldstein, welcome back to the show. It seems like I haven't talked to you in years. How how you been? I've been doing great. Thank you. Thank you. How about you? Good, good, good. And uh, show's doing well. We had some numbers that came in at the end of uh, 2023, and we had a 25% increase in downloads over 2022. We're uh, still in the top 1% of all podcasts. The podcasts have exploded, so all things are... All things are going in the right direction, and I know you're busy, 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 and I want to I want to talk to you about this Semex decision, and I had a really good conversation with, with Tim on this, and I was thinking to my, myself, you know, I bet you Joyce is going to really sink her teeth into this one because we're talking about a, a, a ruling that goes back, what was it, to the 1970s that went against workers, and then fast forward to the labor board of today, and we have a complete turnaround. So talk to me about this decision, Joyce. Go ahead. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. And it's great to be back. It has been a while since we've had a chance to talk. And this is a super exciting case to talk about. Because uh, as you said, I, this CEMEX decision, I think, is really a game changer for labor law. And, uh, and hopefully it'll be around for as long, at least as long as the case that it overruled Lyndon Lumber from 1974, uh, and it, it really does present some uh, a great opportunity for organizing for unions now. So um, I'm I'm thrilled to talk about it. The case, the Semex was decided by the NLRB in this past August. It was August 25th, and. Uh, and a, a couple of months later, November 2nd, uh, the general counsel, Jennifer Bruzzo, also issued guidance to explain how it is that the case will be implemented. Um, one other thing I just have to say procedurally about it is the case itself is on appeal to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. So, you know, who knows what will happen there because, um, well, I mean, hopefully they will in, uh, agree that this was the right decision, but of course we never know what the outcome of that will be. So, um, but for now, this is the law and, uh, and it does present some great opportunities. So what it does, so as I say, a case is called uh, CEMEX. Some people call it CMEX. I have to say, I don't know if it's CEMEX or CMEX, but I call it CEMEX. <laughs> and the basic idea of that is, um, I would say it's, it's like uh, Jennifer Bruzzo began her uh, guidance memo on it and she said, where she said representation delayed is often representation denied. And just as we've heard that expression so often regarding justice generally. Um, and what the Semex case attempts to do and does do is to shorten things up so that uh, if there are violations of the law, uh, that there isn't an encouragement to employers to do that just to drag things out forever and ever and ever, which has kind of been the structure for labor law for a really long time. So what it is, uh, it's, 
is this. You know that um, unions come into existence in a non-union environment, either the two basic tasks or either by recognition, they ask the employer, you know, a majority of the employees through a union, uh, ask to be recognized so that they can move forward as a representative. Uh, or alternatively, they could file a petition with the NLRB for an election. And then there can be an election, if, you know, which the union then could win, and, and then the union comes into existence that way. What the Cenex case does is it sets up a structure so that if, so I'll kind of walk through what would almost look like a flow chart. So employees, the majority of employees ask the employer for voluntary recognition. So if they go to the employer, you know, either on their own through the union and they say, we want, you know, X union to represent us. Unions got support from a majority of the employees. Employer then has a few choices. So the employer can say, okay, yes, you know, we recognize the union and we'll begin to bargain with you a first collective bargaining agreement and move on with life. So that would be, you know, one happy outcome. Mm -hmm. The employer could take the, uh, uh, the opposite approach and uh, say, no, you know, we're not going to recognize the union. We don't really know if you have majority support or not. So we're going to file a petition, what's called an RM petition, with the NLRB so that it will initiate the procedures to have a, an election to determine whether, in fact, a majority of the employees want a union. So the employer can file an RM petition, or the union itself could file an RC petition, either which way. You know, you could go to the NLRB file and you say, you know, we want an election so that the employees could decide if they want a union or not. So let's say then uh, they go ahead and there are petitions filed at the NLRB, um, and that would then commence the process towards having an election. If all goes fine and, you know, the no big deal happens over the course of the time period between when um, there was the initial demand for recognition, the, the petition filed at the board, and the actual election, if everything is all, you know, smooth uh, without any disruptions in the process and people are just trying to learn about employees, you know, whether they want to support the union or not, they have an election, election happens, whatever, union wins or loses, and life goes on. If union wins the election, then, of course, you're in that same place as where you would have been if the employer voluntarily recognized the union. The parties then start to bargain for their first contract. So that's another option. But another option that happens is, let's say, that the employer or the union files a petition for an election, so that is the employer has refused to voluntarily recognize the union, so they go down the path of having an election. If they go down that path and an employer commits an unfair labor practice, one or more unfair labor practices, before the time that the election is actually held, this is where we have now a big change in the law. This is what CEMEX does, among other things. If the employer commits unfair labor practices, it could have affected the outcome of the election, so they have to have you know, some degree of seriousness to them. The 
the NLRB at that point will issue what they call a CEMEX bargaining order. So what the what CEMEX does is CEMEX says that if an employer commits an unfair labor practice in that period of time, that critical period between when the demand for recognition occurred, the filing of the petition for an election, and the actual election, that if there's an unfair labor practice, they will just order the employer to bargain with the union, even though the union didn't win an election. And wow. the that's what's really big because it used to be that an employer, let's say an employer committed unfair labor practices in that critical period of time, what would the NLRB do? The NLRB would say, okay, employer committed these violations, you know, tell the employer you can't do that anymore. And, you know, if people were fired, have them reinstated, all that sort of stuff. But, um, but with respect to the election, the employer would, most cases, they would just order a new election. They'd set aside the results of the election that the union lost, saying, well, you know, the, the results of the election were affected by the unfair labor practice, so we're going to just, you know, hold a new election. If they were really, really egregious unfair labor practices, then it could be that the, the NLRB would issue what were called Gissel bargaining orders, which were very, very rare. Um, but, you know, by and large, they would just be ordering a new election. Now, the, the standard for ordering, a, you know, just having a, a bargaining order instead of just ordering a new election uh, has really changed. So that's a, that's a big deal because it really disincentivizes employers from committing ULPs during that critical period of time. I'll also have to add in there, we have, you know, kind of teed up, not in the CEMEX case, but we have teed up this question of, you know, are captive audience speeches okay? If an employer has a captive audience speech during that critical period and crosses the line by doing that, people aren't given, you know, the opportunity to go or not go, you know, if they're required to sit through forced speech by the employer, if the NLRB finds that captive audience speeches themselves are unfair labor practices, then that could, you know, that, that could trigger potentially, and we're not there yet, but potentially could trigger a CEMEX bargaining order. So that's, that's a big deal. But that's not the only big deal of the CEMEX case. So let me, let me go the other path, right? So I said, like, if you imagine a flow chart, so one part would be, Union asks for recognition, employer says yes, you go ahead and you bargain. Another path is you ask for a recognition, employer or union file a petition with the NLRB triggering the election obligation, and, you know, and either you go forward, have an uneventful election, union wins, and then they start to bargain, or you have, as I say, you go forward with an election, but in course before it actually happens, in that critical period, employer commits an unfair labor practice, and that could result in a CEMEX bargaining order. Other thing that could happen, going way back to the beginning of you know the, the process, is if union asks for recognition, says we have majority support from the employees, what happens if the employer does nothing? Nothing. And this is a really important, this is the other super important part of the CEMEX decision. 
If the employer does nothing in the face of a demand for recognition by the union, the employer's got two weeks to act, two weeks to decide. File a petition and trigger an election so that there could really be, you know, the NLRB can supervise the process. But if you bury your head in the sand as an employer for the two weeks, and you don't agree to recognize or file a petition, you will have been deemed to recognize the union by your silence, by your inaction. And in that case, after two weeks, then there is a bargaining obligation. Just like you had said, yes, there as an employer, there's a bargaining obligation. And if the employer doesn't then, after the two weeks, start to bargain with the union for a, new, for a first contract, then the, the union and employees could go to the NLRB, file an unfair labor practice saying that the employer is refusing to bargain with us. And that will be on an expedited basis of getting processed by the board and by the NLRB, which will result in a CEMEX bargaining order. So if the employer doesn't, do anything, doesn't refuse to recognize and file a petition at the board, and the two weeks pass, they will have been deemed to have recognized, and it will create the bargaining obligation. And if they don't then bargain with the union when the union asks to you know, start bargaining for that first contract, that will be considered an unfair labor practice. So those are really the two, the two big things of what CEMEX does is it uh, is the idea that an employer has two weeks to act after uh, demand for recognition has been made or else there'll be a CEMEX bargaining order. Or the other route of what happens if after a demand for recognition petitions filed and then they commit a ULP during that critical period. And that too could result in a CEMEX bargaining order. Both cases, going back to what I was saying before, is avoiding the idea of representation delayed is often representation denied. Both of these really are intended to accelerate the process and, uh, and avoid the opportunity to just drag things on forever, ever, ever, uh, which has been kind of the basic state of American labor law for a really long time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's yeah. what Cenex does. Certainly a game changer. Joyce, you did a great job. I thank you so much. Joyce Goldstein and Associates, you can check her out at JoyceGoldsteinLaw.com. 40 years practicing labor law. You take care. We'll talk down the road. That'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up on Monday for Martin Luther King, Terry Melvin on behalf of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists and the MLK Art Exhibit in Boston. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful weekend. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.